Number one of Cottage Economy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. Cottage Economy. Containing information relative to the brewing of beer, making of bread, keeping of cows, pigs, bees, ewes, goats, poultry, and rabbits and relative to other matters deemed useful in the conducting of the affairs of a labourer's family, to which are added instructions relative to the selecting, the cutting, and the bleaching of the plants of English grass and grain for the purpose of making hats and bonnets, and also instructions for erecting and using ice-houses after the Virginian manner. By William Cobbett. Number 1. Paragraphs 1-19. to 19, Introduction to the labouring classes of this kingdom. Throughout this little work I shall number the paragraphs, in order to be able at some stages of the work to refer with the more facility to parts that have gone before. The last number will contain an index, by the means of which the several matters may be turned to without loss of time, for when economy is the subject, time is a thing which ought by no means to be overlooked. The word economy, like a great many others, has in its application been very much abused. It is generally used as if it meant parsimony, stinginess, or niggardliness, and at best merely the refraining from expending money. Hence misers and close-fisted men disguise their propensity in conduct under the name of economy, whereas the most liberal disposition, a disposition precisely the contrary of that of the miser, is perfectly consistent with economy. Economy means management, and nothing more, and it is generally applied to the affairs of a house and family, which affairs are an object of the greatest importance, whether as relating to individuals or to a nation. A nation is made powerful and to be honoured in the world not so much by the number of its people as by the ability and character of that people, and the ability and character of a people depend in a great measure upon the economy of the several families which, all taken together, make up the nation. There never yet was, and never will be, a nation permanently great, consisting for the greater part of wretched and miserable families. In every view of the matter, therefore, it is desirable that the families of which a nation consists should be happily off, and as this depends in a great degree upon the management of their concerns, the present work is intended to convey to the families of the labouring classes in particular such information as I think may be useful with regard to that management. I lay it down as a maxim, that for a family to be happy they must be well supplied with food and raiment. It is a sorry effort that people make to persuade others, or to persuade themselves, that they can be happy in a state of want of the necessaries of life. The doctrines which fanaticism preaches, and which teach men to be content with poverty, have a very pernicious tendency, and are calculated to favour tyrants by giving them passive slaves. To live well, to enjoy all things that make life pleasant, is the right of every man who constantly uses his strength judiciously and lawfully. It is to blaspheme God to suppose that he created man to be miserable, to hunger, thirst, and perish with cold, in the midst of that abundance which is the fruit of their own labour. Instead, therefore, of applauding happy poverty, which applause is so much the fashion of the present day, I despise the man that is poor and contented for such content is certain proof of a base disposition, a disposition which is the enemy of all industry, all exertion, all love of independence. 
Let it be understood, however, that by poverty I mean real want, a real insufficiency of the food and raiment and lodging necessary to health and decency, and not that imaginary poverty of which some persons complain. The man who, by his own and his family's labour, can provide a sufficiency of food and raiment, and a comfortable dwelling-place, is not a poor man. There must be different ranks and degrees in every civil society, and indeed so it is even amongst the savage tribes. There must be different degrees of wealth, some must have more than others, and the richest must be a great deal richer than the least rich. But it is necessary to the very existence of a people, that nine out of ten should live wholly by the sweat of their brow, and is it not degrading to human nature, that all the nine-tenths should be called poor, and what is still worse, call themselves poor, and be contented in that degraded state? The laws, the economy or management of a state, may be such as to render it impossible for the labourer, however skilful and industrious, to maintain his family in health and decency and such has for many years past been the management of the affairs of this once truly great and happy land a system of paper money the effect of which was to take from the labourer the half of his earnings was what no industry and care could make head against i do not pretend that this system was adopted by design but no matter for the cause such was the effect better times however are approaching the labourer now appears likely to obtain that hire of which he is worthy, and therefore this appears to me to be the time to press upon him the duty of using his best exertions for the rearing of his family in a manner that must give him the best security for happiness to himself, his wife and children, and to make him in all respects what his forefathers were. The people of England have been famed in all ages for their good living, for the abundance of their food and goodness of their attire the old sayings about English roast-beef and plum-pudding, and about English hospitality, had not their foundations in nothing. And in spite of all refinements of sickly minds, it is abundant living amongst the people at large which is the great test of good government, and the surest basis of national greatness and security. If the labourer have his fair wages, if there be no false weights and measures, whether of money or of goods, by which he is defrauded, if the laws be equal in their effect upon all men, if he be called upon for no more than his due share of the expenses necessary to support the government and defend the country, he has no reason to complain. If the largeness of his family demand extraordinary labour and care, these are due from him to it. He is the cause of the existence of that family, and therefore he is not, except in cases of accidental calamity, to throw upon others the burden of supporting it. Besides, little children are as arrows in the hands of the giant, and blessed is the man that hath his quiver full of them. That is to say, children, if they bring their cares, bring also their pleasures and solid advantages. They become very soon so many assistants and props to the parents, who, when old age comes on, are amply repaid for all the toils and all the cares that children have occasioned in their infancy. To be without sure and safe friends in the world makes life not worth having, and whom can we be so sure of as of our children? Brothers and sisters are a mutual support. We see them in almost every case grow up into prosperity when they act the part that the impulses of nature prescribe. When cordially united, a father and sons, or a family of brothers and sisters, may in almost any state of life set what is called misfortune at defiance. 
these considerations are much more than enough to sweeten the toils and cares of parents and to make them regard every additional child as an additional blessing but that children may be a blessing and not a curse care must be taken of their education this word has of late years been so perverted so corrupted so abused in its application that i am almost afraid to use it here yet i must not suffer it to be usurped by cant and tyranny i must use it but not without clearly saying what i mean education means breeding up bringing up or rearing up and nothing more this includes everything with regard to the mind as well as the body of a child but of late years it has been so used as to have no sense applied to it but that of book-learning, with which, nine times out of ten, it has nothing at all to do. It is indeed proper, and it is the duty of all parents, to teach or cause to be taught their children as much as they can of books, after, and not before, all the measures are safely taken for enabling them to get their living by labour, or for providing them a living without labour and that, too, out of the means obtained and secured by the parents, out of their own income. The taste of the times is, unhappily, to give children something of book-learning, with a view of placing them to live, in some way or other, upon the labour of other people. Very seldom, comparatively speaking, has this succeeded, even during the wasteful public expenditure of the last thirty years, and in the times that are approaching it cannot, I thank God, succeed at all. When the project has failed, what disappointment, mortification, and misery to both parent and child! The latter is spoiled as a labourer, his book-learning has only made him conceited, into some course of desperation he falls, and the end is but too often not only wretched, but ignominious. Understand me clearly here, however, for it is the duty of parents to give, if they be able, book-learning to their children, having first taken care to make them capable of earning their living by bodily labour. When that object has once been secured, the other may, if the ability remain, be attended to. But I am wholly against children wasting their time in the idleness of what is called education, and particularly in schools over which the parents have no control, and where nothing is taught but the rudiments of civility, pauperism, and slavery. The education that I have in view is therefore of a very different kind. You should bear constantly in mind that nine-tenths of us are, from the very nature and necessities of the world, born to gain our livelihood by the sweat of our brow. What reason have we, then, to presume that our children are not to do the same? If they be, as now and then one will be, endued with extraordinary powers of mind, those powers may have an opportunity of developing themselves and if they never have that opportunity, the harm is not very great to us or to them. Nor does it hence follow that the descendants of labourers are always to be labourers. The path upwards is steep and long, to be sure. Industry, care, skill, excellence in the present parent lay the foundation of a rise under more favourable circumstances for his children. The children of these take another rise, and by and by the descendants of the present labourer become gentlemen. This is the natural progress. It is by attempting to reach the top at a single leap that so much misery is produced in the world, and the propensity to make such attempts has been cherished and encouraged by the strange projects that we have witnessed of late years for making the labourers virtuous and happy by giving them what is called education. 
The education which I speak of consists in bringing children up to labour with steadiness, with care, and with skill, to show them how to do as many useful things as possible, to teach them to do them all in the best manner, to set them an example in industry, sobriety, cleanliness, and neatness, to make all these habitual to them, so that they never shall be liable to fall into the contrary, to let them always see a good living proceeding from labour, and thus to remove from them the temptation to get at the goods of others by violent or fraudulent means, and to keep far from their minds all the inducements to hypocrisy and deceit. And bear in mind that if the state of the labourer has its disadvantages when compared with other callings and conditions of life, it has also its advantages. It is free from the torments of ambition, and from a great part of the causes of ill-health for which not all the riches in the world and all the circumstances of high rank are a compensation. The able and prudent labourer is always safe at the least, and that is what few men are who are lifted above him. They have losses and crosses to fear, the very thought of which never enters his mind if he act well his part towards himself, his family, and his neighbours. But the basis of good to him is steady and skilful labour to assist him in the pursuit of this labour, and in the turning of it to the best account, are the principal objects of the present little work. I propose to treat of brewing beer, making bread, keeping cows and pigs, rearing poultry, and of other matters, and to show that while from a very small piece of ground a large part of the food of a considerable family may be raised, the very act of raising it will be the best possible foundation of education of the children of the labourer that it will teach them a great number of useful things, add greatly to their value when they go forth from their father's home, make them start in life with all possible advantages, and give them the best chance of leading happy lives. And is it not much more rational for parents to be employed in teaching their children how to cultivate a garden, to feed and rear animals, to make bread, beer, bacon, butter and cheese, and to be able to do these things for themselves or for others, than to leave them to prowl about the lanes and commons, or to mope at the heels of some crafty, sleek-headed, pretended saint, who, while he extracts the last penny from their pockets, bids them be contented with their misery, and promises them, in exchange for their pence, everlasting glory in the world to come. It is upon the hungry and the wretched that the fanatic works. The dejected and forlorn are his prey. As an ailing carcass engenders vermin, a pauperized community engenders teachers of fanaticism, the very foundation of whose doctrines is that we are to care nothing about this world, and that all our labours and exertions are in vain. The man who is doing well, who is in good health, who has a blooming and dutiful and cheerful and happy family about him, and who passes his day of rest amongst them, is not to be made to believe that he was born to be miserable and that poverty, the natural and just reward of laziness, is to secure him a crown of glory. Far be it from me to recommend a disregard of even outward observances as to matters of religion, but can it be religion to believe that God hath made us to be wretched and dejected? Can it be religion to regard as marks of his grace the poverty and misery that almost invariably attend our neglect to use the means of obtaining a competence in worldly things? Can it be religion to regard as blessings those things, those very things which God expressly numbers amongst his curses? 
poverty never finds a place amongst the blessings promised by God. His blessings are of a directly opposite description. Flocks, herds, corn, wine and oil. A smiling land, a rejoicing people. Abundance for the body and gladness of heart. These are the blessings which God promises to the industrious, the sober, the careful and the upright. Let no man then believe that to be poor and wretched is a mark of God's favour. And let no man remain in that state, if he by any honest means can rescue himself from it. Poverty leads to all sorts of evil consequences. Want, horrid want, is the great parent of crime. To have a dutiful family, the father's principle of rule, must be love, not fear. His sway must be gentle, or he will have only an unwilling and short-lived obedience. But it is given to but few men to be gentle and good-humoured amidst the various torments attendant on pinching poverty. A competence is, therefore, the first thing to be thought of. It is the foundation of all good in the labourer's dwelling. Without it little but misery can be expected. Health, peace, and competence, one of the wisest of men regards as the only things needful to man. But the two former are scarcely to be had without the latter. Competence is the foundation of happiness and of exertion. Beset with wants, having a mind continually harassed with fears of starvation, who can act with energy, who can calmly think? To provide a good living, therefore, for himself and family, is the very first duty of every man. Two things, says Agar, have I asked, deny me them not before I die, remove far from me vanity and lies, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee, or lest I be poor and steal. A good living, therefore, a competence, is the first thing to be desired and to be sought after and if this little work should have the effect of aiding only a small portion of the labouring classes in securing that competence, it will afford great gratification to their friend William Cobbett. Kensington, 19th of July, 1821. Paragraphs 20 to 37. Brewing Beer. Before I proceed to give any directions about brewing, let me mention some of the inducements to do the thing. In former times, to set about to show to Englishmen that it was good for them to brew beer in their houses, would have been as impertinent as gravely to insist that they ought to endeavour not to lose their breath, for in those times, only forty years ago, to have a house and not to brew was a rare thing indeed. Mr. Ellman, an old man and a large farmer in Sussex, has recently given in evidence before a committee of the House of Commons this fact, that forty years ago, there was not a labourer in his parish that did not brew his own beer, and that now there is not one that does it, except by chance the malt be given him. The causes of this change have been the lowering of the wages of labour compared with the price of provisions, by the means of the paper money, the enormous tax upon the barley when made into malt, and the increased tax upon hops. These have quite changed the customs of the English people as to their drink. They still drink beer, but in general it is of the brewing of common brewers, and in public houses, of which the common brewers have become the owners, and have thus, by the aid of paper money, obtained a monopoly in the supplying of the great body of the people with one of those things which, to the hard-working man, is almost a necessary of life. 
these things will be altered they must be altered the nation must be sunk into nothingness or a new system must be adopted and the nation will not sink into nothingness the malt now pays a tax of four shillings and sixpence a bushel and the barley costs only three shillings this brings the bushel of malt to eight shillings including the maltster's charge for malting if the tax were taken off the malt malt would be sold at the present price of barley for about three shillings and threepence a bushel because a bushel of barley makes more than a bushel of malt and the tax besides its amount causes great expenses of various sorts to the maltster the hops pay a tax of twopence a pound and a bushel of malt requires in general a pound of hops if these two taxes were taken off therefore the consumption of barley and of hops would be exceedingly increased for double the present quantity would be demanded and the land is always ready to send it forth it appears impossible that the landlords should much longer submit to these intolerable burdens on their estates in short they must get off the malt tax or lose those estates they must do a great deal more indeed but that they must do at any rate the paper money is fast losing its destructive power and things are with regard to the labourers coming back to what they were forty years ago and therefore we may prepare for the making of beer in our own houses and take leave of the poisonous stuff served out to us by common brewers we may begin immediately for even at present prices home-brewed beer is the cheapest drink that a family can use except milk and milk can be applicable only in certain cases the drink which has come to supply the place of beer has in general been tea it is notorious that tea has no useful strength in it that it contains nothing nutritious that it besides being good for nothing has badness in it because it is well known to produce want of sleep in many cases and in all cases to shake and weaken the nerves it is in fact a weaker kind of laudanum which enlivens for the moment and deadens afterwards at any rate it communicates no strength to the body it does not in any degree assist in affording what labour demands it is then of no use and now as to its cost compared with that of beer i shall make my comparison applicable to a year or three hundred and sixty-five days i shall suppose the tea to be only five shillings the pound the sugar only sevenpence the milk only twopence a quart the prices are at the very lowest i shall suppose a teapot to cost a shilling six cups and saucers two shillings and sixpence and six pewter spoons eighteenpence how to estimate the firing i hardly know but certainly there must be in the course of the year two hundred fires made that would not be made were it not for tea-drinking then comes the great article of all the time employed in this tea-making affair it is impossible to make a fire boil water make the tea drink it wash up the things sweep up the fireplace and put all to rights again in a less space of time upon an average than two hours however let us allow one hour and here we have a woman occupied no less than three hundred and sixty-five hours in the year or thirty whole days at twelve hours in the day that is to say one month out of the twelve in the year besides the waste of the man's time in hanging about waiting for the tea needs there anything more to make us cease to wonder at seeing labourers children with dirty linen and holes in the heels of their stockings observe too that the time thus spent is one half of it the best time of the day it is the top of the morning 
which in every calling of life contains an hour worth two or three hours of the afternoon. By the time that the clattering tea-tackle is out of the way, the morning is spoiled, its prime is gone, and any work that is to be done afterwards lags heavily along. If the mother have to go out to work, the tea affair must all first be over. She comes into the field, in summer-time, when the sun has gone a third part of his course. She has the heat of the day to encounter, instead of having her work done, and being ready to return home at any early hour. Yet early she must go, too, for there is the fire again to be made, the clattering tea-tackle again to come forward, and even in the longest day she must have candle-light, which never ought to be seen in a cottage, except in case of illness, from March to September. Now, then, let us take the bare cost of the use of tea. I suppose a pound of tea to last twenty days, which is not nearly half an ounce every morning and evening. I allow for each mess half a pint of milk, and I allow three pounds of the red dirty sugar to each pound of tea. The account of expenditure would then stand very high, but to these must be added the amount of the tea-tackle, one set of which will upon an average be demolished every year. To these outgoings must be added the cost of beer at the public-house, for some the man will have, after all, and the woman too, unless they be upon the point of actual starvation. Two pots a week is as little as will serve in this way, and here is a dead loss of ninepence a week seeing that two pots of beer full as strong and a great deal better can be brewed at home for threepence, The account of the year's tea-drinking will then stand thus. Eighteen pounds of tea, four pounds ten shillings. Fifty-four pounds of sugar, one pound eleven and six. Three hundred and sixty-five pints of milk, one pound ten. Tea-tackle, five shillings. Two hundred fires, sixteen shillings and eightpence. Thirty days' work, fifteen shillings. Loss by going to public house, one pound nineteen. Total, eleven pounds, seven shillings, and twopence. I have here estimated everything at its very lowest. The entertainment which I have here provided is as poor, as mean, as miserable as anything short of starvation can set forth, and yet the wretched thing amounts to a good third part of a good and able labourer's wages. For this money he and his family may drink good and wholesome beer, in a short time out of the mere savings from this waste, may drink it out of silver cups and tankards. In a labourer's family wholesome beer, that has a little life in it, is all that is wanted in general. Little children that do not work should not have beer broth, porridge, or something in that way is the thing for them. However, I shall suppose, in order to make my comparison as little complicated as possible, that he brews nothing but beer as strong as the generality of beer to be had at the public-house, and divested of the poisonous drugs which that beer but too often contains, and I shall further suppose that he uses in his family two quarts of this beer, every day from the first of October to the last day of March, inclusive, three quarts a day during the months of april and may four quarts a day during the months of june and september and five quarts a day during the months of july and august and if this be not enough it must be a family of drunkards here are one thousand and seventy nine quarts or two hundred and seventy four gallons now a bushel of malt will make eighteen gallons of better beer than that which is sold in the public houses and this is precisely a gallon for the price of a quart. 
people should bear in mind that the beer bought at the public house is loaded with the beer tax with the tax on the public housekeeper in the shape of the license with all the taxes and expenses of the brewer with all the taxes rent and other expenses of the publican and with all the profits of both brewer and publican so that when a man swallows a pot of beer at a public house he has all these expenses to help to defray besides the mere tax on the malt and on the hops well then to brew this ample supply of good beer for a labourer's family these two hundred and seventy four gallons requires fifteen bushels of malt and for let us do the thing well fifteen pounds of hops the malt is now eight shillings a bushel and very good hops may be bought for less than a shilling a pound the grains and yeast will amply pay for the labour and fuel employed in the brewing seeing that there will be pigs to eat the grains and bread to be baked with the yeast the account will then stand thus fifteen bushels of malt six pounds fifteen pounds of hops fifteen shillings ware of utensils ten shillings total seven pounds five shillings here then is the sum of four pounds two shillings and tuppence saved every year the utensils for brewing are a brass kettle a mashing tub coolers for which washing tubs may serve a half hogshead with one end taken out for a ton tub about four nine-gallon casks and a couple of eighteen-gallon casks this is an ample supply of utensils each of which will last with proper care a good long lifetime or two and the whole of which even if purchased new from the shop will only exceed by a few shillings if they exceed at all the amount of the saving arising the very first year from quitting the troublesome and pernicious practice of drinking tea the saving of each succeeding year would if you chose it purchase a silver mug to hold half a pint at least however the saving would naturally be applied to purposes more conducive to the well-being and happiness of a family it is not however the mere saving to which i look this is indeed a matter of great importance whether we look at the amount itself or at the ultimate consequences of a judicious application of it for four pounds make a great hole in a man's wages for the year and when we consider all the advantages that would arise to a family of children from having these four pounds now so miserably wasted laid out upon their backs in the shape of a decent dress it is impossible to look at this waste without feelings of sorrow not wholly unmixed with those of a harsher description but i look upon the thing in a still more serious light i view the tea-drinking as a destroyer of health an enfeebler of the frame an engenderer of effeminacy and laziness a debaucher of youth and a maker of misery for old age in the fifteen bushels of malt there are five hundred and seventy pounds weight of sweet that is to say of nutritious matter unmixed with anything injurious to health in the seven hundred and thirty tea messes of the year there are fifty four pounds of sweet in the sugar and about thirty pounds of matter equal to sugar in the milk here are eighty four pounds instead of five hundred and seventy and even the good effect of these eighty four pounds is more than overbalanced by the corrosive gnawing and poisonous powers of the tea it is impossible for any one to deny the truth of this statement put it to the test with a lean hog give him the fifteen bushels of malt and he will repay you in ten score of bacon or thereabouts but give him the seven hundred and thirty tea messes or rather begin to give them to him 
and give him nothing else, and he is dead with hunger and bequeaths you his skeleton at the end of about seven days. It is impossible to doubt, in such a case, that tea-drinking has done a great deal in bringing this nation into the state of misery in which it now is, and the tea-drinking which is carried on by dribs and by drabs, by pence and farthings going out at a time, this miserable practice has been gradually introduced by the growing weight of the taxes on malt and on hops, and by the everlasting penury amongst the labourers occasioned by the paper money. We see better prospects, however, and therefore let us now rouse ourselves, and shake from us the degrading curse, the effects of which have been much more extensive and infinitely more mischievous than men in general seem to imagine. It must be evident to every one that the practice of tea-drinking must render the frame feeble and unfit to encounter hard labour or severe weather, while, as I have shown, it deducts from the means of replenishing the belly and covering the back. Hence succeeds a softness, an effeminacy, a seeking for the fireside, a lurking in the bed, and in short all the characteristics of idleness, for which in this case real want of strength furnishes an apology. The tea-drinking fills the public-house, makes the frequenting of it habitual, corrupts boys as soon as they are able to move from home, and does little less for the girls, to whom the gossip of the tea-table is no bad preparatory school for the brothel. At the very least it teaches them idleness. The everlasting dawdling about with the slops of the tea-tackle gives them a relish for nothing that requires strength and activity. When they go from home they know how to do nothing that is useful to brew, to bake, to make butter, to milk, to rear poultry, to do any earthly thing of use, they are wholly unqualified. To shut poor young creatures up in manufactories is bad enough, but there at any rate they do something that is useful. Whereas the girl that has been brought up merely to boil the tea-kettle, and to assist in the gossip inseparable from the practice, is a mere consumer of food, a pest to her employer, and a curse to her husband, if any man be so unfortunate as to fix his affections upon her. But is it in the power of any man, any good labourer who has attained the age of fifty, to look back upon the last thirty years of his life without cursing the day in which tea was introduced into England? Where is there such a man who cannot trace to this cause a very considerable part of all the mortifications and sufferings of his life? When was he ever too late at his labour? When did he ever meet with a frown, with the turning off and pauperism on that account, without being able to trace it to the tea-kettle? When reproached with lagging in the morning, the poor wretch tells you that he will make up for it by working during his breakfast-time. I have heard this a hundred and a hundred times over. He was up time enough, but the tea-kettle kept him lolling and lounging at home, and now, instead of sitting down to a breakfast upon bread, bacon, and beer, which is to carry him on to the hour of dinner, he has to force his limbs along under the sweat of feebleness, and at dinner-time to swallow his dry bread or slake his half-feverish thirst at the pump or the brook. To the wretched tea-kettle he has to return at night, with legs hardly sufficient to maintain him, and thus he makes his miserable progress towards that death which he finds ten or fifteen years sooner than he would have found it if he had made his wife brew beer instead of making tea. 
if he now and then gladdens his heart with the drugs of the public-house some quarrel some accident some illness is the probable consequence to the affray abroad succeeds an affray at home the mischievous example reaches the children corrupts them or scatters them and misery for life is the consequence i should now proceed to the details of brewing but these though they will not occupy a large space must be put off to the second number the custom of brewing at home has so long ceased amongst labourers and in many cases amongst tradesmen that it was necessary for me fully to state my reasons for wishing to see the custom revived i shall in my next clearly explain how the operation is performed and it will be found to be so easy a thing that i am not without hope that many tradesmen who now spend their evenings at the public-house amidst tobacco-smoke and empty noise may be induced by the finding of better drink at home at a quarter part of the price to perceive that home is by far the pleasantest place wherein to pass their hours of relaxation my work is intended chiefly for the benefit of cottagers who must of course have some land for i purpose to show that a large part of the food of even a large family may be raised without any diminution of the labourer's earnings abroad from forty rod or a quarter of an acre of ground but at the same time what i have to say will be applicable to larger establishments in all the branches of domestic economy and especially to that of providing a family with beer the kind of beer for a labourer's family that is to say the degree of strength must depend on circumstances on the numerousness of the family on the season of the year and various other things but generally speaking beer half the strength of that mentioned in paragraph twenty five will be quite strong enough for that is at least one-third stronger than the farmhouse small beer which however as long experience has proved is best suited to the purpose a judicious labourer would probably always have some ale in his house and have small beer for the general drink there is no reason why he should not keep christmas as well as the farmer and when he is mowing reaping or is it any other hard work a quart or three pints of really good fat ale a day is by no means too much however circumstances vary so much with different labourers that as to the sort of beer and the number of brewings and the times of brewing no general rule can be laid down before i proceed to explain the uses of the several brewing utensils i must speak of the quality of the materials of which beer is made that is to say the malt hops and water malt varies very much in quality as indeed it must with the quality of the barley when good it is full of flour and in biting a grain asunder you will find it bite easily and see the shell thin and filled up well with flour if it bite hard and steely the malt is bad there is pale malt and brown malt but the difference in the two arises merely from the different degrees of heat employed in the drying the main thing to attend to is this the quantity of flour if the barley was bad thin or steely whether from unripeness or blight or any other cause it will not malt so well that is to say it will not send out its roots in due time and a part of it will still be barley then the world is wicked enough to think and even to say that there are maltsters who when they send you a bushel of malt put a little barley amongst it the malt being taxed and the barley not let us hope that this is seldom the case 
yet when we do know that this terrible system of taxation induces the beer-selling gentry to supply their customers with stuff little better than poison it is not very uncharitable to suppose it possible for some maltsters to yield to the temptations of the devil so far as to play the trick above mentioned to detect this trick and to discover what portion of the barley is in an unmalted state take a handful of the unground malt and put it into a bowl of cold water mix it about with the water a little that is let every grain be just wet all over and whatever part of them sink are not good if you have your malt ground there is not as i know of any means of detection therefore if your brewing be considerable in amount grind your own malt the means of doing which is very easy and neither expensive nor troublesome as will appear when i come to speak of flour if the barley be well malted there is still a variety in the quality of the malt that is to say a bushel of malt from fine plump heavy barley will be better than the same quantity from thin and light barley in this case as in the case of wheat the weight is the criterion of the quality only bear in mind that as a bushel of wheat weighing sixty-two pounds is better worth six shillings than a bushel weighing fifty-two is worth four shillings so a bushel of malt weighing forty-five pounds is better worth nine shillings than a bushel weighing thirty-five is worth six shillings in malt therefore as in everything else the word cheap is a deception unless the quality be taken into view but bear in mind that in the case of unmalted barley mixed with the malt the weight can be no rule for barley is heavier than malt End of number one.